Good morning. It's good to be with you, and we're going to be in John chapter 8 this morning. If you did not bring your Bible, there should be a red one right underneath you. And in the red Bibles, that's page 1662. Uh, And then also in the back of the sanctuary, we've started putting Bibles in a basket uh, because if you don't have a Bible or you know someone who doesn't have a Bible, we want you to take one with you as a gift today uh, and just make sure that we're making God's Word accessible uh, to you and to those in your life. Let me, uh, let me quickly revisit a question and a statement made by Bill uh, last week as we began this series, this study of looking at I am statements uh, by Jesus. And, and last week he taught when Jesus said, I am the bread of life in John 6. Um, but to revisit a question and a statement. And I, I just took a whole lot of time this week to really think through and reflect on this question and this statement. And if you weren't here, I'm, I'm revisiting this now because it's good and it's rich and it's challenging and you should take it with you and spend a lot of time on it today. The question is this, are you willing to trade religious activities for a more wholehearted trust in Christ? Are you willing to trade religious activities for a more wholehearted trust in Christ? And the statement was this, there are countless Christians that are educated beyond their level of obedience. And that's something that has been stirring up in my spirit this week, um, as I don't, want, I don't want to be a Christian myself, just uh, is educated beyond my level of obedience. I want to know God's word, but I want to live and walk and live out what God's word tells me. And so today we're continuing uh, a conversation around an I am statement. We see Jesus continuing to clear up his identity because he's saying I am. That's an introduction of who he is. So let's just allow God's word to really refine our hearts today. Uh, We'll be in John chapter 8. But in John chapter 7, we see this continuing discussion that includes opposing views. Um, you, You could almost call it argumentative in a way. Between Jesus and Jewish leaders Uh, of the time. Pharisees were included in that. And then in chapter 8, tension is growing uh, because this story unfolds where an adulterous woman, she's caught in the act of adultery and she's brought to the temple where Jesus is hanging out with these religious leaders, uh, these Jewish leaders and Pharisees. And we taught on that passage on a Sunday morning within the last few months um, but it's, it's a great picture of what Christ came to accomplish uh, in opposition to our sin. John leaves no doubt regarding the Pharisees' motivation behind this encounter uh, as we see that the entire scene is, is a setup. It's an attempt to trap Jesus because according to the law of Moses, depending on this woman's marital status, she could be uh, put to death right there by people throwing stones at her, stones like the size of tangerines. Um, and so they want to see, this is what the Mosaic law uh, says should happen in this moment. We want, we want to trap Jesus and see what he would say about this woman's sin. And here's the centerpiece of this scene. When Jesus says to all the men standing around judging this woman's actions, okay, if anyone here is without sin, go ahead and throw the first stone. And one by one, these men vanish. They could have been perplexed by what they just experienced. They could have been convicted. 
by the question that Jesus asked, causing them to look internally at their own sin before judging another person's sin. And then here comes the verdict. The verdict that this woman has been waiting for, Jesus says to her, I, I do not condemn you. I don't condemn you. But then he says, just don't, don't go about life as usual. Go and leave your life of sin. Go and depart from this destructive behavior, these poor choices. Leave your life of sin. That's John 8, 11. And so right there we see the central miracle of salvation where God's justice and God's grace get married in the moment and a sinner is released without condemnation. That is the miracle of salvation. Justice and grace married, harmonized without condemning a sinner. And the chapter continues. Jesus makes a few of his Hall of Fame statements, Hall of Fame remarks that you know well. He says, if you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples. If you do that, you hold to my teaching, you're going to know the truth. And then when you know the truth, the truth is going to set you free. He says in John 8, everyone who sins is slave to sin. But if the Son sets you free from sin, you're free indeed. You don't have to keep walking in sin. He says, he who belongs to God hears what God says. And he says, I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now that is a great promise, right? The word truth appears nine times throughout chapter eight, so clearly this is a prominent theme in this conversation, and there's a lot happening where Jesus is introducing who he is to these individuals. And while there's a lot going on, these religious leaders, Jewish leaders and Pharisees trying to trap Jesus, right, in contradicting the law, there's a lot of things happening in this passage, but there's one verse that I want us to look at today. Because there's one verse that I think we can really take and learn from and apply to our everyday life starting today. So verse 12, this I am declaration, this blunt and revealing introduction of who Jesus is. So let's glean from this profound statement and let's saturate our lives with what Jesus says. He spoke to the people again in verse 12 right after releasing this woman from this accusatory circle waiting to kill her and he sends her off without condemnation and he says, I'm the light of the world. I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I'm the light of the world. That also sounds familiar from Matthew chapter 5, where it says, you are the light of the world. You are a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden, because if I, Christ, am in you, my followers, my light is in you. He says, I am the light of the world, so keep in mind this Jewish audience listening to him make this statement. Most of these individuals in their early childhood years had learned and memorized good, extensive portions of the Torah, if not the entire first thing. So these people, they understand what Jesus is saying because they understand light from the first four verses in Genesis. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless. It was empty. 
It was dark. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. Light was good. Darkness wasn't good. Darkness does not get a shout out here from the beginning of time, the moment of creation. It's light that is good, not darkness. Light is good. Light is pleasant and beautiful and delightful. Light's convenient. Light is precious. The Hebrew word here of good conveys this moral goodness differentiated from moral evil. It's used elsewhere in the Old Testament multiple occasions. So we're seeing, we're seeing this implication of light and darkness is good and bad. Ultimately, we see in Scripture, it's life and death. So from the moment of creation, he separates the two. Light and darkness, they're torn apart, they're divided, they're severed, and they're never to have a relationship, ever. They're sworn enemies. They're polar opposites, like fire and ice, like OU and OSU, (laughs) enemies. And we see this vast distinction between light and darkness all throughout Scripture. We're called sons of light in John 16 and Colossians 1. We are delivered from the power of darkness, Colossians 1. We're called into the light, 1 Peter 2. The way of the wicked is like darkness, Proverbs 4. We are to walk in the light, John 12, 1 John 1. Darkness is connected to trouble and sorrow, Isaiah 5. God's word is a light unto our path, Psalm 119. Darkness causes people to stumble and fall, Proverbs 4. You are given and instructed to put on the armor of light, Romans 12. Darkness is a place comparable to prison, Isaiah 42. You get the point, right? But then we see light personified in Scripture. And I love the amplified version of 1 John 1.5, where it says, this is the message of God's promised revelation, which we have heard from him, and now we announce to you that God is light. Light is personified right here. He's holy. His message is truthful. He is perfect and righteousness, and in him, there's no darkness at all, period. There's no sin. There's no wickedness. There's no imperfection. He is light. John 1.4 tells us, in him was light, and that life was the light of all mankind. I love, I love thinking about this actual scene unfolding as Jesus is clearing his heavenly throat and saying, I am pure light. There's not a trace of darkness in me. Should you be skeptical of my identity, know right here and now from the beginning of my ministry, I'm light, I'm pure light, there's no trace of darkness in me. And friends, that 
is a powerful and a liberating feeling when you're on the right side of the war between light and darkness. That is powerful and liberating to be on the right side of this war that is waged against your spirit every single day, this unending, unending war in the spiritual realms. And then Jesus continues uh, with two claims that would have agitated some of his audience even more. He says, I'm the light of the world. I'm the light of the world. He doesn't say I'm a light, like I'm an option, A, B, C, and D. No, I'm the light. There's no other light except for me. It is Jesus or it is darkness, period. That's it. And so he says, I'm the light of the world. And so these Pharisees and religious leaders could hardly grasp in that moment that Jesus came for all people. The inclusion of the Gentiles would have definitely ruffled some feathers. But we know all throughout his ministry, especially from Paul's writings, that Christ was for all and in all. Here in Christ, there's no distinction between barbarian or Scythian or Greek or Jew or circumcised or uncircumcised or slave or free, but Christ is all. He is the light of the entire world. And then, verse 12 continues, he says, Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Don't you agree that one of the greatest challenges in our spiritual life is discerning what is light and dark? And our enemy, Jesus calls him the father of lies. His native tongue is a lie. Everything he says is deception. It's like I think of David crying out in Psalm 139, Lord, search me, test me. You know my ways, you know my heart, you know my thoughts. See if there's any detestable way in me. And then if there is, if I'm flirting in any way with the darkness, don't leave me here, but Lord, lead me into everlasting light. It is so hard discerning that Distinction at times between light and darkness. The prophet Isaiah warned us of this in chapter 5, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Woe to those. Judgment is coming to you who call evil good and you who call good evil. And you put darkness for light and light for darkness. He says you're putting bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. We're confusing what's happening in this spiritual realm around us when we take darkness and call it light, when we take something that is encouraging our spiritual death and we try to find life in it. This is the war at hand. To drive home this point, I would like to introduce you to the anglerfish. Enough said, right? Isn't she beautiful? You just want one in your aquarium, don't you? Um, So this fish lives in what is easily one of the Earth's most intimidating habitats. The lonely, dark bottom of the sea. Has 200, you know I love this stuff, right? 
I'm always like throwing out this National Geographic insert in the sermon. I just love it. But, uh, there's like 200 species. Most of them live in the Atlantic Ocean, up to a mile below the surface. They have these huge heads, as you can see on this beautiful one, with this enormous crescent-shaped mouth with sharp, translucent teeth. You can notice the, the extension of the dorsal spine that hangs over the fish's mouth like a fishing pole, hence the name of the species, the angler fish. And, and, and this, this fish has a built-in uh, fishing rod that contains luminous flesh. So in the midst of the darkest parts of the ocean, its prey is lurking along in the deep, looking for food, and it sees in the distance this light, can't see what's behind the light, sees the light, swims towards the light, thinks that it's light, thinks that it's something of substance to eat, to consume. And then the prey realizes what's really happening here. And then the prey realizes, I'm no longer pursuing prey, I'm being preyed upon. I am no longer going to consume something that I thought was good, but something is about to consume me. Um, so, I'm sorry in advance that I have to use Disney analogies so often, but I have four children, 10 and under, and so that's just sort of another language we speak. Is Disney quotes, Disney scenes, do you remember that one time? And Lion King, that this and that. And so um, the anglerfish is best introduced um, through a scene in Finding Nemo. Enjoy. Oh, oh, oh I love to swim. In. Dory. When you want to swim, you want See, to I'm going to get stuck now with that song. Now it's in my head. Sorry. Dory, do you see anything? Ah, something's got me. That was me. I'm sorry. <gasps> Who's that? Who's that? Who could it be? It's me. Are, are you my conscience? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm your conscience. We haven't spoken for a while. How are you? Can't complain. Yeah, good. Now, Dory, I want you to tell me. Do you see anything? I see a... I see a light. A light? Yeah, over there. Hey, conscience, am I dead? Oh, I, I, I see it too. What is it? It's so pretty. I, I'm feeling happy, which is a big deal for me. I want to touch it. Oh. Hey, come back. <laughs> come on back here. I'm gonna get you. I'm gonna get you. I'm gonna get I'm you. I'm gonna swim with you. I'm gonna get you. I'm gonna be your best friend. Good feelings gone. We could stop here with just one question. What were Marlon and Dory doing in the deep, dark waters in the first place? In a spiritual context, don't you ask yourself that from time to time? What was I thinking? Why was I there? Why was I pursuing that in the first place? 
But we're no different. We're no different. We know where we're safe. We know where our Father is. We know where we can experience the truth of God's Word. We know where the Holy Spirit is active in our lives, but then bait dangles in the distance, and we leave our place in the light, and we walk towards the darkness, and then just like the dumb fish in that movie scene, we see the darkness, and we start saying things just like Dory and Marlon did. Look at it. It's so pretty. I'm feeling happy, and that's a big deal for me. I want to touch it. And we get in trouble. But right then, Jesus Christ arrives on the scene. And his light exposes the darkness. His light reveals the snare, the trap, the entanglement around our spiritual self. And his light illuminates what's really going on, and we see the trouble we're in. And when we see the trouble we're in, that's when we say exactly like Marlon said, good feeling gone. Oh, we know. When the light of Christ, the life of Christ shines on the darkness, the temptation, the sin, the addiction, the resentment, the bitterness, the fear, the light shines, lets us see what's really happening, and the good feeling is gone. In John 10.10, this is a well-known passage because it's a great summary spoken by Jesus of the war that is taking place between light and darkness, the war that is waged on your soul, uh, life or death. And Jesus put it this way, the thief comes, and this is his agenda. He comes to steal and kill and destroy. That's all he wants to do. I have come, though, Jesus says that they may have life, and life abundantly. And if that passage doesn't cause at least one of you to turn on some loud music in your living room after lunch and just dance before the Lord, then I'm not sure this sermon worked. This is remarkable that the enemy has this agenda to steal and kill and destroy, but Jesus comes so we have life and life abundantly. And so to finish today, would you stand to your feet as we prepare to worship together? And I want to look at at, at John 10.10 a little more with you. This week I spent some time on this verse. I took time just looking at it, thinking on it, meditating on it, studying it. And what I did is I wrote out a lengthier paraphrase. So it's, it's not technically God's Word that I'm going to read to you uh, because God's Word doesn't need to be altered. So I'm just, I'm just saying, I, I wrote out a lengthier interpretation of this verse with the full expression and the full tone of the original language in each and every word. And so we have this lengthier um, interpretation that I'm going to read over you right now. And as I read this, I really want you to let it wash over your life, wash over your spirit and your heart and your thinking 
And allow God to really renew your strength today. Allow God, if there's a place, as David said, search me, Lord. And if there's anything detestable in me, pull me out of that darkness and lead me into the light. If there's anything in your life that you know, you would say, that's me today. Let let what I'm going to read just pull you towards light today. And so you may bow your heads You may sit down, you may hold out your palms to the heavens to receive this this morning, but let me read this lengthier interpretation of John 10.10 with the full expression and tone of the original language. The thief, Satan is his name, He's crafty. He is sly. And he comes to steal. He comes to take from you secretly, like an ambush. He wants you dead. And he will kill you by butchering you like an animal. He wants to sacrifice you. His only aim, his only aim is to destroy everything about you, to delight in watching you suffer, to delight in your misery, to inflict violent and permanent destruction on your soul that you would utterly perish. But I, Jesus Christ, I have come. I have come for you. Yes, I have. I am here. I'm here right now. I, Jesus, have dramatically arrived on the scene of your despair, and I call the shots now. Your enemy, he's no match for me. I'm here. I'm here to snatch you right out of the trap that he set. I'm here to pick you up, my son. My sweet daughter, I am here to bandage your wounds. And I'm here to give you life. Oh, I will sustain you, yes, physically, here, right now, in this present moment. Oh, my child, I have so much more for you. I have so much more for you. I will sustain you spiritually. Listen, your entire future existence is safe with me. With me. Yes, right here. Don't wander off, my child. But stay here. I have a life for you that is abundant and overflowing and plentiful and exceedingly beyond anything that you could ever anticipate. So friends, let's worship. 
let's worship now, not because we're afraid of darkness, but because we know Jesus and because Jesus is light. Let's worship.